if you see me looking over this way, that's because uh, I got you up here on the wall. Ah, larger than life. <laughs> well, I don't know. You could be that big in real life. The camera does strange things, but I'm going to assume that you're... <laughs> it adds uh, five pounds and five yeah, pieces of spinach right. in your teeth. <laughs> Complete, a podcast about game development and game design. My name is Scott. And I'm Tad. We're both grad students in the School of Computing at Queen's University, and we help run the Queen's Game Developers Club. The Queen's Game Developers Club was started to provide an environment for students who are interested in game development and design, but don't really know where to start. We'll be talking to people in industry and academia who work with games to hear about their experiences. You can find our club homepage at www.qgdc.ca. On today's podcast, we are talking with Rob Yale from Yale Music. Rob is an accomplished composer and musician, and his video game credits include Prince of Persia 3, Splinter Cell for the PSP, and the Odyssey, Winds of Athena. This podcast was recorded during one of our Queen's Game Developers Club meetings, so the audio may be a bit quiet during the audience participation. So we're talking to uh, Rob Yale from Yale Music. Um, Rob's an accomplished composer uh, whose video game credits includes Prince of uh, Persia 3, Splinter Cell for the PSP, and the Odyssey Winds of Athena. Um, Rob, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, who you are and tell us a bit more about Yale Music? Sure. Um, well, I've been playing music most of my life, and uh, I guess I started playing professionally when I was about 18, um, pretty much... Uh, joined the union right away and uh, played live for a while until about 1981 where I started doing a lot of studio work and uh, around that time I bought a Fairlight and uh, started using the Fairlight um, in the studio did a lot of work in commercials um, probably about 40 albums and uh, I don't know how many TV shows um, that I worked on um, I did that for a while and then uh, towards the end of the 80s I built my own recording studio in Toronto, and it was a commercial studio. And uh, that I ran for about 12 years, and then I merged with a much bigger place um, where we did a lot of orchestral recording. A couple of years of that, and then I ended up just breaking off on my own um, to just focus on composition. And uh, I've been playing video games, um, I don't know, I guess probably since the beginning of, of, uh, uh, of the 80s, um, you know, starting with text-based games. Eventually, I, uh, I saw Myst and became in love with the 3D environment and, uh, uh, you know, and watched it grow. Eventually, was playing MMOs, um, EverQuest, WoW, currently playing Rift, um, you know, various platform games as well. And... Uh, decided to, to focus on doing music for video games. That's pretty much up to date. Cool, thanks a lot, that's really interesting. So um, so you, you told us a little bit about how, uh, your interest in video games. 
How, how did you manage to, to, to make that link, like your first foray into video games? Did you, did you kind of put out feelers, and, or did, did people come to you? You mean my first, first foray into uh, writing music for video games? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I came to the decision that I, I, I wanted to, to do it because um, I really liked a lot of the music that was being done in video games, and I'd seen a real um, incredible growth in the quality of audio for video games. I mean, they started off as being really crummy um, MIDI sounds, and then it eventually became almost, you know, the same budgets as motion pictures, uh, doing full orchestras being done, you know, by um, L.A., you know, string um, orchestras and so on. And um, so I, I saw that as being an area I wanted to get into. Um, and as for how I got into it, I basically decided I wanted to get into it, and I started to research it. And I found certain organizations like IGDA, um, which you guys probably know, International Game Developers Associ Association. And there's a one for audio called GANG, or the Game Audio Network Guild. And uh, those people are the same people that put together the video game, uh, video game live, those concerts that have been touring around, playing video game music. Um, and so there's lots of information available from them. And then I went to the GDC, uh, the Game Developer Conference, and that is, that's a great thing to do for a person like me who's a musician who's lurking, looking to meet developers or for people like you who are, um, you know, technical guys, you know, looking for, for gigs with some of the developers they're all there, and they, they have like a job fair. So it's a great place to make contacts. Anyway, that's kind of how it started for me. Um, and also, I put up an ad in Gama Sutra, which you probably saw, and that has actually gotten me um, a fair amount of work. That's, that's fantastic, Rob. Thanks a lot. Um, most of us here, well, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I think most of us here are... Uh, computer scientists or software engineers, uh, and most of the people that we've talked to in the club have been um, developers of games, so we were really excited to talk to you because you are, uh, you're you working on the musical aspect of it. So I have to admit I'm a bit naive, but can you maybe walk us a bit um, through the, the, the process of, of making the musical score of a video game and what, what your process is like? Well, my focus has been in mobile games, and typically what happens is the developer provides me with some artwork. Um, see, the difference between writing music for a game and writing music for a film is a film is linear, and you can actually write to the images that are happening, whereas a game, you have no idea what the player is going to do. So the music has to be more uh, capable of adapting to different, different types of situations and you have to consider the gameplay, you have to consider that there's a person who's actually involved in this as opposed to somebody sitting back and being entertained uh, like people watching um, a movie. Um, so the process is to look at the pictures and to try and get an image in your mind plus the descriptions that the developer gives you uh, of what they're thinking of and you try to get as much information as you possibly can and then um, you have an empty sheet of paper and you just go and you try and think of something to put on it. Awesome. Um, so uh, I think you, you said earlier you were using a theremin. I uh, is that right? A theremin? No, it, yeah. was, a, it was a fair light. Um, oh, sorry. Fair light, right, sorry. That's okay. 
Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the tools you use when you're, you're creating your game music? What do I use now? Yeah. Um, right now I'm using Cubase. I'm using, um, using Cubase as my sequencer. I also use Ableton Live somewhat. And sometimes I use uh, Reason Record. It really depends on the kind of music I'm going to be writing. If it's more of a dance um, kind of thing, then Reason is actually really good for that. Um, but if it's something that might be, you know, might have uh, like a real arrangement to it, then Cubase is great. Um, and uh, so as far as my hardware goes, what I have is a, a Dell uh, Precision uh, workstation with uh, um, a pair of Xeons, quad core Z pair of quad core Xeons, uh, 16 gig of RAM. Uh, we're using Quadro video cards. I think they're 3800s. Um, and uh, let's see. Um, that's pretty much pretty much the size of it um, of what I'm what I'm using. Plus a lot of other software instruments like Contact, which is a, a software-based sampler and sample playback. Uh, thing. I don't know if are you guys at all if you're at all familiar with any of that kind of world. I know uh, we probably know some of the software packages like Cubase is is familiar. Um, that's a pretty high end machine though. <laughs> I don't think we have that kind of kind of workhorse available. We've got a bunch of students in the crowd. Well, actually, actually, we have four of those machines here, and three of them are dedicated to uh, animation, and uh, and uh, another one is. Uh, well, mine is dedicated to music, but the beauty of it is they're all the same. So if one of the machines goes down, it's just a matter of popping the hard drive out and slipping it into another machine. This uh, laptop I'm talking to you is a mobile, a mobile precision. It's the M6600. And are you working out of a out of a studio, Rob, or is everything done at home? <laughs> the downstairs, the basement of my home has been converted into a studio, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to go very far to work. That sounds common for uh, for sound setups. You'll often hear that uh, these these elaborate and intricate sound systems will be in in somebody's basement, and you just never know walking by this house in this suburban area. It's got a killer setup in the basement. That's right, and it started in Los Angeles too. Like a lot of the, a lot of the the big major recording studios found they were getting some very hot competition from uh, people running project studios out of their house. Wow. How how has that changed recently? Because I remember a decade ago being in a university band producing music that was mediocre, and being so excited about having a four track available. Um, you know, we we had our little four track recorder. Uh, just a few years later, we upgraded to a computer with Cubase, and a few years later, people are doing entire albums that sound like they came out of a studio in in their basement. I mean, it seems like it's really ramped up fast. It has. It's ramped up extremely fast. Um, to give you an idea of it, back when I had my studio, um, we used a Sony 48-track um, digital tape machine. So that was a, that, that's actually a digital recorder, and, and that was the state of the art at that time. That machine cost a quarter of a million dollars. Wow. Um, now, or actually when the machine was sold, it sold for less than 5000 so you can you can get a sense of the kind of impact that things like Pro Tools have had on on the you know the traditional kind of recording studio. Um, our our studio um, in Toronto, McClear Digital, um, it uh, we converted every one of the rooms to Pro Tools rooms because it made a lot of sense 
to have the rooms all compatible with each other. I mean, I had my Fairlight, which I moved from my studio, which um, was a great thing to work with, but it just it was kind of the odd man out. Right. Um, you, Rob, you mentioned you're, you're like like you said earlier you're uh, you're located in Toronto. Um, do you uh, do you typically work with Canadian companies or are you typically working with game game companies all across the world? It's funny you should mention that. Um, I just finished doing a game with a company in Romania. Uh, <laughs> wow. They, like you, found my ad in Gamasutra, and they hired me to do this game. It recently came out on iPad, Android, and um, and, and that sort of stuff. It's called Muffin Night, and it's a platformer. And uh, it's actually it's actually amazing that that I can work with some guys in Romania and <laughs> and deliver things to them. And the other beautiful thing was that when I invoiced them, um, I emailed an invoice, and they paid me by PayPal. <laughs> I didn't have to wait for it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and they're in Romania. I mean, and, you know, anyway, I've had, I've had to wait longer for money in the past. <laughs> so so you, you, uh, you, you're working with companies all over the world, essentially, so it doesn't really matter where you're located these days. Well, um, there's a caveat to that. Um, it does matter where you're located. Uh, getting work is obviously easier if you're located in a place like, um, like Los Angeles or New York or... You know, depending on the kind of work that you're doing, it, 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 it helps if you can actually take a meeting with people, you know, face-to-face. -face. But having said that, actually doing the work um, is really, you don't have to be in the same room as them. And it's quite, it's quite, uh, it's quite easy to do, painless. Is there a question? Oh, yeah. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. Um, I guess... I Potentially a two-part question, depending on what your answer in the first part is. Um, uh, that is, what job does music do in the video game? Like, what did the develop what problem the developers have? And they said, you know what tool would be great for this a music soundtrack? Um, okay. Well, the answer to that is probably very similar to the answer to the question of why do they have music in films or television shows? Why do they have underscoring? And the easiest way to get the answer to that is to watch a movie without the music. Just listening to the dialogue and sound effects or whatever, but with the music removed. And then listen to it with the music in. What the music tends to do, it's, I guess it's because we're kind of trained to listen to music and films in that way, is it adds atmosphere. And when the director is trying to get you to pay attention to a certain thing, um, he can use the music to illustrate or cause your attention to go in different places and uh, that's what the what music does in films in games on the other hand it's kind of different and it's still very new um, the, there are all kinds of things have been tried like adaptive tracks like music tracks that where the music actually morphs and may not play the same way twice uh, based on what the player is doing um, but you know, typically, typically what happens is you have a piece of music that's looping underneath the player, and depending on where the player is moving in the game, that may trigger another piece of music. And and hopefully, what it's doing is it's it's adding emotion and, and uh, excitement if excitement is what's needed, or you know, calmness if calmness is what is needed. 
Is there a follow-up? Yeah, it was actually. So, was, um, so mood, I guess, was kind of uh, the answer there. And I was wondering about the relationship between you and a developer um, when maybe you're like, I guess you're trying to. Are you ever in a position where you're trying to prompt the user to feel something, or is it all reactive? Like, will the developer come to you and say, "Yeah, when the guy walks through here, I want him to cry." Or make him scared, or you know, all, all these classic riffs that we know that we associate with, um, like you know, the deep cello, the Jaws, you know, like oh, I should probably turn around now. Um, and so, yeah, the relationship between you and the developer to create mood, um, how does it work? Well, there's there's all kinds of different ways. Some some people go for what's called a light motif, um, where you have specific motifs that are attached to various parts of the game or the film. I mean, I guess uh, I'm trying to think of a game. Maybe a good example might be the Final Fantasy series. I don't know if you guys have ever played any of those. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as, as, as... You have? A, yeah. you have? <laughs> as you move through the game, there's there's music that changes depending on your location. They also do some very strange things because when you go into fight sequences, the music suddenly changes into this, uh, you know, martial kind of music. Um, you know, obviously, to add excitement when you're in the middle of a, of a boss fight. Actually, boss fights have a completely different kind of music than just ordinary, you know, NPC fights. Um, but I don't think it's quite as Machiavellian as saying, I want the guy... To you know, to feel a specific thing, it's more like you're creating challenges for the person. You really don't know how they're going to react to it, um, and that's I think the beauty of games is that they are so nonlinear, and there are so many multitude of ways that a person can react to any specific thing. So the challenge with the music is to support whatever the player is doing. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't have like the cognitive tools to like think about the implications of everything you said, but yeah, cool. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Is there anybody else? Yeah. yeah. Uh, how far along are the games in development when you're approaching the music for them? Are, are you making music based off design documents usually, or do you get to kind of play through the levels and then base the music off of that? Uh, typically, um, Typically, you will get design documents maybe anyway, um, you know, just so that you can get more of a sense of, of what the developers are thinking. Um, because um, I guess they want to they focus you in what the idea of the game is. Um, but typically, when the mu music is being done, the games are in some form of playability. Some form of playability. And because really, there's no other way for the developer to test what you've done until they pop it into the game. Right. And uh, how much does the design after that influenced by the music? Uh, and do you ever get situations where the level kind of changes and the developer just kind of go in a different direction with the level design based off of the music? I haven't experienced that. Um, but typically, typically, it's more a case of. Uh, you know, somebody might say, no, that's not quite what we were thinking of. And so you go back and you, you modify what you did. Um, I, I find that, that most of the time the developers have a really good idea of what they want. Um, 
sometimes people go so far as to to create what they call temp tracks and they put temp music in and then they can tell you kind of you know here's an example of the kind of thing but the un problem with that is if they become in love with their temp track and that doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> happens a lot in commercials too because when they're developing commercials they will put a temp track and they'll live with this temp track and they may even pitch it to the client with the temp track and then they'll love the temp track and find out they don't have enough money to buy it oh. and, <laughs> and then they try to get you to copy it and of course you say no I won't do that <laughs> kind of a, you know you could get sued a couple I'm less of a programmer guy these days and more of an audio guy for me so it's really a great opportunity to be able to chat with you um, are you using a mixture of outboard gear and virtual instruments or are you almost entirely in the virtual uh, space when it comes to the sounds that you're using I'm using totally virtual instruments, Com completely virtual instruments, um, for a couple of reasons. One, I'm not, I'm not that much of an aficionado of, of the uh, of, of the outboard gear and, and specifically, you know, maybe vintage gear. However, uh, amazing things have been done with uh, modeling some of the vintage gear. Um, you know, Waves have done some incredible things with their plugins. Um, and I just find it a great way to work, you know. If you have a powerful enough computer, you can really get a lot of things going at the same time. Uh, do you have any concern, or have you ever run into any um, issues with the limitations of audio fidelity or size restrictions for some of the portable games uh, that, you've, that you've worked on? Well, because the majority of the games I've worked on have been mobile, um, a lot of the time the music is going to be probably converted into Og Vorbis and uh, and uh, you know of course that is a compromise um, but it still sounds pretty good and it sounds way way better than what we could accomplish 10 years ago and do you have any experience with um, or have you ever been asked to work on generative or adaptive music for games I haven't but I have an interest in it um, I at, a couple of years ago I was at the GDC and I saw a couple of uh, demonstrations of adaptive music. Um, a couple of people, I think there were three different takes on adaptive music that were brought in there. And it, it is quite remarkable. Um, I'm trying to think of some games that I've played that have adaptive music. Um, I just can't recall the names of it. But the type of thing where the music just morphs, it, it seems like a really, a really neat thing to do. You write music in layers and... And then allow the layers to come out depending on maybe some kind of criteria you have. Maybe it's a, a matrix, you know, and uh, you you got X and Y, and depending upon where the person is, it, it may influence, you know, which piece of music is going to be more predominant. It I I think the more stuff will happen like that in the future. Um, which game composers or specific game soundtracks have uh, inspired you or continue to inspire you? Um, okay, well, the game I'm playing right now, uh, Rift, the uh, composer is, uh, is a guy named Enon Zork, and I really like the score that he's done for that. Um, the scores for World of Warcraft, um, the composers have changed over the years. 
Uh, I've met some of the guys who worked on that. Um, most of that music is pretty good. It's it, and it's gotten better, I think. Um, some of the some of the more recent stuff. Um, also, Halo, Marty O'Donnell. Um, he's a great composer. Um, all the all the Halo games have had amazing music, and that's been a big part of the game for me. Has been the music. And EverQuest, um, Laura Cartman uh, was the composer for the music for EverQuest, and uh, she did. She wrote some really nice music. I don't think that the music. I, I, it's fairly. It's fairly early. Um, I guess it was about seven or eight years ago that that music was written, and I think that the state of the art has has moved along quite a bit. She wrote beautiful music. I don't know if it was necessarily. Um, the best music for um, an MMO. And my last question: What happened to the Fairlight? Ah, <laughs> no, that's a good question. Well, the Fairlight morphed. It started off as a Fairlight Series Two, and uh, that was the Fairlight that used the big eight-inch floppies. And I still have those floppies here, um, including the floppies I used when I was working on David Bowie's album, and. Uh, then the Fairlight morphed into the Series 3, and that one had hard drives. Um, and then eventually it, they made another change, a final change. It turned into called the Fairlight MFX, which was more of, a, uh, more of an editing machine. It was an amazing machine to edit with. It, it made Pro Tools look stupid. Um, but uh, unfortunately, it was very proprietary. And uh, that was its one problem, is, that, is its proprietariness and the fact that Pro Tools was so ubiquitous. Um, but the Fairlight, what happened to it? Um, a studio in Ottawa bought the Fairlight from us at McClear. And uh, uh, I don't know if they're still using it to this day. I only know one other guy who still uses his Fairlight to this day. Um, John, uh, I can't remember his last name, but he moved out west and took his Fairlight with him. But that's kind of what happened to it. It, it. it sort of got surpassed, you might say. In the, in the days when I first started with it, it was all 8-bit. Great questions. Great questions. <laughs> awesome. Is anybody else? OK. Um, so I have a couple, a couple more questions, because um, this is really interesting. Um, there's a, there's a, been a big trend recently in, in indie games of uh, the game being released, followed by a release of the soundtrack itself. Um, have you thought about doing <laughs> that? Um, and do you do you have the ability to? Do you when you typically work? Do you have the rights to your music, and, and is that something that you could do yourself? Or I'm amazed that you asked that question because I just released an album of my music about three days ago. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Um, the game that I was telling you about, Muffin Night, that was done yeah. by Angry Mob Games in Romania. Um, after I did it, I asked them. I said. Um, would you be at all interested in me putting the music out as an album as a kind of a way to promote each other? Um, you know, you guys could promote the music and I can promote your game and, um, and maybe it'll be useful to both of us. And they thought it was a wonderful idea. And so what I did was I did extended versions of all of the music in the game and uh, ended up with about 16 pieces and uh, made an album out of it and released it on iTunes about three days ago. Wow, great. Has, uh, 
what's the response been to it? Because it seems like people are really getting behind that. Well, you know, I'm not going to know till December, because oh. <laughs> <laughs> because the way that iTunes works is um, they only they only give you I think every three months uh, reports on what the sales are. So I have no way of knowing. And the best thing that I can do is to kind of put it out of my mind and just wait, to, you know, see what happens in December. Um, but in any case, even if it doesn't sell copies, it's still bound to be a good promotional thing, both for the developer and for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I had a question about how you work with clients. Um, how do they detail the requirements for the music? Do they give you screenshots, uh, maybe game artwork, some demo footage, or kind of resources they give you to work with? Um, well, the artwork and sometimes a design document so that you can get more of a sense of what the game is. But then they'll tell you what they were thinking of, um, what, the, what their notion of what the music should be. And they communicate that to you. And then the tricky thing for the composer is to, is to try and communicate with somebody who is speaking in non-musical terms in such a way that the two of you can know what each other are talking about. And, you know, it can be very difficult for a non-musician to communicate something. Probably the best way to do it is by saying a piece of music like this and give an example. Like one person um, gave me an example of Holst, the planets. So as soon as I know that, you know, I know exactly, you know, what kind of thing I'm, I'm going for. If I, if I know, you know, which piece he's, he's using, or wants to use, then I can write something that's in that kind of genre. Is there a lot of back and forth with them? Like you send what you think they're looking for and they send back replying saying, no, no, not this, and then you send another one, that kind of thing. Yeah, there, there can be. Um, in this last game, um, there was one cue that I ended up doing three versions of it. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, it, 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 was, it was funny, it was just because of me missing an email that I probably could have reduced that to two versions. But um, it was for a Halloween level for the game. And I had said to them very early on in the proceedings, what about um, Mazorsky's Night, Night on Bald Mountain? And so I just sort of wrote that down and thought no more of it. And then I proceeded and, to write some things and my score got bounced, and then it got bounced again. And then I found that email, and in it he said, oh, yeah, your Night on Bald Mountain thing was great. You know, just do something like that. And, of course, if I'd seen that, then I could have done it right away. Okay. Is there any more questions? Yeah. Um, do you ever feel, like, how do you feel when people say, do something like this? Like... Um, I think a lot of people who are in music or you know, just do like what they feel like writing, you know, if they're interested in something in a certain genre or if um, a certain pattern intrigues them, then they'll, you know, expand on that and make a song. But people are coming to you and say, oh yeah, can you rip this guy off? Um, like, how does, like, how does that make you feel as, uh, as an artist? Well, first of all, there's a difference between writing something like something and ripping something off. Um, there was a time when there were a lot of sound-alikes being done, for example, in the commercial business, like in advertising, lots of them. And then, um, and then it became um, 
common knowledge that that even a sound alike if the intention was to sound like a specific piece of music was suable so that sort of stopped happening um, more or less um, but if somebody comes to me and they say I want it to be like Tchaikovsky or I want it to be like Marty O'Donnell or I want it to be like something it's actually very useful to me because now I know the genre and the kind of style that they want. I'm not going to write a piece of music exactly like that, um, like that composer's music, but at least I'll know the style, and I'll, I'll know what they're thinking, and it's very helpful, actually. And um, so you mentioned earlier that you know there's some uh, the game kind of promotes your album, and the album kind of promotes the game. Do you ever? Uh, look for opportunities to create a piece in the music that will really encourage the user to find your soundtrack, to you know look for it and listen to it and buy it. Is that something you take into consideration, or maybe that you will um, take into consideration in the future? Do you mean? Uh, I'm I'm not quite sure I understand the question. So like, um, so it, it is ideal that someone will buy your album, right? That is kind of like the preferred thing that you know you write the soundtrack and then you sell like quadruple bazillion platinum. Um, so that, that is something you want, right? Well, it will never happen, but yes, I would like it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you look for opportunities to be like, oh man, I have like this awesome idea for something that like will be universally loved by everyone who plays this game. They'll all want to buy my album. Is that like an opportunity that you will look for? when you're um, writing the music? Well, sure. Uh, something like that, I, I would definitely definitely look for. Um, you mean like if I'm, if I'm writing the music for something that I was hired for, and then uh, to be thinking in terms of maybe using that to do an album in the future? Uh, or, similar, yeah. Or are you thinking like writing a piece of music that could be used for a game and maybe trying to find somebody you know, to, to work creatively with. Uh, I suppose it could work both ways. That would be an interesting project, actually, to design a game around a piece of music. Um, I guess for now it works the way around. I yeah. can talk about that if you want. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, an interesting thing, I don't know if you've seen the movie Magnolia. Um, maybe not. Well, the movie uh, was written around Amy Mann's music. Actually, actually every every scene in the movie was built around a particular song of hers, which is a very interesting way to do a movie. Have you thought about that? Like, I don't know, like, you're obviously big into composing, but have you, like, woken up in the middle of the night and be like, man, I have so many cool ideas, can someone just, like, make a game around this? <laughs> is that something that happens to you when you're eating cereal or whatever? Well... <laughs> The funny thing is, when you write something, you're in love with whatever it is you write, as you write it, and then, and then when when a piece of music gets bounced, you don't stop loving that piece of music. So, you end up with a kind of a collection of all these things that nobody has wanted, but you still really like them a lot. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have written them in the first place. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, I don't know. I'm just busy being interested. <laughs> I'm not telling you. I have, I have kind of a related question to the to the first part of that. So, um, 
rather it was a big lawsuit against uh, Electronic Arts, a big video game company who I'm sure you know. Um, a few years back, I think it was it was '05 or '06, and it was called the EA Spouse lawsuit. And I've harped on it here to people in the club a few times because that was when I happened to work there. Um, but the the crux of the argument that EA made. Uh, they were sued because they weren't paying overtime. They were the notorious games crunch time was was in effect. And what EA said was that our engineers and additionally to a, a large extent our producers and our artists are are well they didn't use this term but they're effectively the cogs in a machine and they don't have creative input on the game. We ask them to do something and they produce the game that we ask them to do. Have you ever found that in music? Uh, do you ever find that a company comes to you and, and says, well, we're you're just a, a tool in our machine, and it's not really your input so much as you're just executing on what we've asked you to do. Well, there's a term which is supplier. And, for example, in advertising, they think of composers as just another supplier. So the composers, the video editors, um, everybody, uh, you know, the voiceover people, all are suppliers, in a sense. But, you know... I, I guess it's. I guess it comes with the territory. Um, if if what you're doing is you're creating this very large project and you got to coordinate all these people, you got your animators, you got your 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 programmers, your texture guys, and then you got your composer. So I can see how they could fall into that kind of mindset of thinking that people are just cogs in the machine. But another example is with bands. Like a lot of time, a perfect example would be a band like No Doubt. And, uh, you know, the band started as a band, but eventually it kind of morphed into just being the singer. And it happens a lot of times that uh, a label will look at a band and they'll focus on the singer. And they'll think of the band members as being kind of like cogs in the machine, replaceable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any um, Rob, could you uh, could you give us some advice on uh, students or uh, you know aspiring mus musicians looking to get into uh, to game audio? Um, the things that I mentioned earlier, uh, the GDC for sure, uh, the Game Audio Network Guild. Um, if you want to write down the uh, the URL, it's. Uh, um, audiogang.org and that's a great place to go and get information um, and uh, the website Gama Sutra is also a good source of information too and uh, but uh, of all the things going to the GDC and maybe maybe E3 too for you guys maybe E3 might be a good thing too because the E3 is mostly developers going and speaking to publishers as I understand it whereas the GDC is more the developers you know kind of um, uh, talking to the to potential people who might be working for them or using you know tools and so on their tools middleware and so on so those are the things I would recommend for somebody looking to get into game audio um, and just have a love of games which you all obviously do <laughs> is there uh, is there any particular skills that uh, someone should polish up on if they're they're looking to get into uh, to game audio, or is it's just natural talent? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, I, I, I guess it, it's pretty much the typical musical education that a person can get in composition would probably prepare you for uh, the kinds of things you would have to do in game audio. Um, I don't think it's really all that different from other types of music, you know, being written for, um, th you know, media. Um, but I think one of the most important skills a person can have is uh, their personal skills, you know, talking to people, networking. I think those things are really important um, for getting work. Awesome. That's great advice. Um, I guess... Uh, we're, we're just about ready to wrap up here. I, I, I just wanted to ask maybe, and, and you could feel free, free to plug uh, any future projects you're working on, but uh, what are the future plans for uh, Yale Music down the road? Well, well what is happening is we're putting together a, um, a project with animation and with audio. So somewhere down the road, we're going to be trying to produce our own content, which is kind of the ideal thing. Um, for anybody who's creative, being in the position of creating your own content is always, um, I won't say desirable to, but it's its a more freer position to be in than, than to be a supplier, as it were. So that's kind of the, the area that we're looking to be going into. Content completion. Rob, I have, a, I have a quick note. I have a bunch of buddies who I used to work with at EA who are now on the Rift team at Tryon. Um, oh, really? Do you, put in, do you want me to put in a good word? Please. Okay. <laughs> Done. Done. <laughs> not, that I, not that I think I have much pull anymore, but I, I can, I can uh, just let them know this is up because it, it is a sweet game, and, and I agree. But, yeah, it, it, is, it, is a, it is a great game. It's yeah. really, really quite different. Um, it, and it, a lot of it is the same, too, but they've really done some interesting things. Yeah. Um, well, is there any further questions? Or? Uh, yeah, how much is it on your mind when you're writing music for games that the player can just stand in one room for a game? Make sure that it, the music uh, or the player doesn't get bored listening to the same music. Kind of, is it just the length of the piece while it loops, or is it something more subtle? Well, obviously, the longer a piece is, then the better chance you have of them not getting sick of it. So as, as game technology starts to get, you know, improve and computers become more powerful and we're able to up the quality of the music and the, and the quantity of the music, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the package that we send out to the user, um, you know, all those things will contribute to making the music a lot more tolerable because, yes, you're totally right. Uh, the looping, eventually, if the loops are too short, it's going to, you know, make the person go crazy, I think. And a lot of people, what they do is they replace music. I know they do. They replace music with their own music, or they turn the music down if, if the music does that. Um, I don't. I, I, tend to, I tend to let the music continue, and it just sort of becomes part of the atmosphere for me. I've, I, I've tried playing without the music, and I actually prefer it with it, even if it is looping. That's just personal. Yeah, yeah, same, same here. Uh -huh. Right. Anyone else? Questions? Do you know how much composition do you have to make for a small game? And, 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 and,
How many which? I'm sorry. Uh, compositions. So how many tracks or songs do you make uh, for a small game versus a, a larger game? Well, for a, for a mobile game, it can it can be as as small as one piece of music per level. Um, and in the case of this one that I just did, this this um, iPhone, iPad, Android game, um, there were uh, there are six levels, and then there's the theme. So that's seven pieces of music. Um, uh, that's on the low end. And sometimes in a game, the piece of music will be just a fanfare. And, and that's all there is. The rest of it might be almost more sound design than music. You know, some kind of an ambient noise that's going on in the background. And the composer may be called on to do that because they want that ambient noise to be more on, on the musical side. Um, on the other hand, it could be as many as 30 or 40 pieces. And we're talking mobile game. Um, and um, for working on a on a PC game, it could end up being as much as maybe 40, 40 minutes, 45 minutes of music. 40, 40 minutes is an average amount of music for, let's say, a feature film. Because music isn't wall-to-wall. Um, is there an overarching structure that you have? So you mentioned that you can have up to 40 different pieces of music. Um, and since the main, the primary function is to create atmosphere, um, what tips and tricks do you employ to stop the soundtrack as a whole from being schizophrenic? Hmm. Well, in the case of, of this, this, this little one, this Muffin Night game that I did, I had a melody for a theme and they liked it and so what I ended up doing was I ended up working with that melody and putting it through different kinds of um, mutations like minor mode and you know depending on the mood of the level like there was a level that was a haunted a haunted like ghost town level so I took the melody which was a happy chirpy uh, major type of thing and I put it into a minor mode um, but I as much as possible as much as I could I, tr I tried to use those melodic elements to tie the thing together in, 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 in some sense. And, you know, due to the nature of the game, it was possible to do it. Uh, for a larger game, it might not be possible. You know, you might have to have entire um, areas where the music is absolutely different and needs to be absolutely different because that's the effect you're trying to go for. Um, is there no? Okay. Well, it looks like uh, we're all out of questions, uh, but this is this is fantastic, Rob. I'm, I'm really glad we, uh, we we can get you to come speak with us. Uh, I found this personally fascinating. So, well, my uh, pleasure. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It's been great, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll keep you posted uh, when when this goes online, and uh, and we'll we'll definitely link to your website and everything. Mm -hmm. Rob, Thanks. what's what's the site? It's uh, Yale Music Y A L E M U S I C dot C A. Great. Awesome. Great. All right. Thanks again, Rob. Thanks. So long. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Hi. All right. Let me maximize you here. Not full screen. Oh, is that full screen? Is that as good as it gets? Um, you on your contacts? I don't know. Do this. I feel pretty maximized. 